This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran, giving you eternal answers to challenging questions and providing reasons for faith in Christ. We are continuing our series on Judaism with Pat Zucaran and Pat's special guest. Pat? Yes, Kevin, we have with us a special guest. In fact, he's actually a classmate of mine from Dallas Theological Seminary. We graduated right about the same time there. Uh, this is Steve Gurr. Steve Gurr has a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He served as an associate pastor after graduating and now is a leader of a great ministry, a great evangelistic outreach to Jewish people called Sojourner Ministries. He's been full-time president and leader of Sojourner Ministries for the last eight years. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here, or should I say shalom? <laughs> That's right. You find yourself very busy right now, being that this is the celebration of Easter for Christians, but also a special celebration for Jewish people right now, right? Well, actually, uh, Passover and Easter usually fall together in the calendar year. This year is a little bit different. Uh, the Jewish people need to tack on a, uh, we don't have a leap year, we have a leap month that we add on uh, every couple of years. And so Passover is actually a month away, but uh, nonetheless, Passover, uh, sharing how Christ fulfilled the Passover, keeps me pretty busy uh, around the Easter season. Right. Now, Stephen, why don't you tell us about your background? You are Jewish uh, in your heritage, aren't you? I am Jewish. I am a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is what makes one Jewish. But I am a believer in Jesus. I'm a Christian by faith. So you can call me a Jewish believer, a Jewish Christian, a Messianic Jew, a Hebrew Christian, a uh, Jewish believer by any other name. Hopefully will smell as sweet. But and some uh, people call you crazy. <laughs> Some, right. hey, <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot, yeah, my people. Uh, but um, I am a fourth-generation Jewish believer. Uh, almost 80 years ago, my great-grandmother, Helen Kozer, found her Messiah in the Holy Land. Uh, that's Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and, <laughs> and she passed down her faith to my grandmother, who passed down her faith to her daughter, my mother, who passed down her faith to me. Now, Steve, tell us how you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a decision we each must make as an individual. So tell us how you made uh, that decision. Well, I was raised in a mixed home, an intermarriage, if you will, where both uh, my mother and father were ethnically Jewish, but my mother was a believer in Jesus. My father was not. So uh, while it was a very stable home, um, theologically, it was a little bit uh, confused. But I was raised, because of that situation, I was raised both with an understanding of who Jesus was and what Judaism taught. As a matter of fact, my great aunt was a missionary to the Jewish people, and so uh, I grew up under her teaching. And so from the very, very earliest of, uh, of my years, I remember believing in Jesus. In fact, I have the really tremendous uh, privilege of being able to say there is no time in my life when I do not remember believing that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, there may have been times when I walked away and lived inconsistently from that belief, but there have been no time, there's been no time in my life that I wasn't absolutely assured and convinced from the earliest of years when my great aunt, the missionary, put me up in front of everybody uh, in the congregation to uh, sing uh, uh, solos uh, at the age of four years old, uh, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, I had the privilege also of being trained in uh, the Reformed Temple for my bar mitzvah training, and three, three and a half, four years of 
intensive, rigorous uh, cultural and linguistic training to uh, say today I was a man when I was 13. Uh, I'm still looking to say today I'm a man. But um, that privilege of that kind of education has really enabled me to be able to speak articulately and with deep conviction, knowing from both segments, both sides of the coin, who Jesus is and how he fits together with the Jewish people, how he's fulfilled the Jewish messianic hope. Right. And Steve, uh, with his Jewish background, is going to provide us some real good insight into uh, Jewish life and the understanding of the cultural times of Israel, of Jesus Christ and the messianic hope that he fulfills. Now, Steve, we know that the apostles first went to the Jews with the message of the gospel. And why did they do that? Well, there's two reasons that the apostles originally went, actually three reasons that the apostles originally went to the Jews. The first is that Jesus told them to start in Jerusalem. And uh, I just wrote a commentary on the book of Acts that just came out uh, two months ago. And one of the things that we Uh, discover as we look at the first decade of church history is it basically takes uh, a full seven years from Jesus' resurrection uh, until the first Gentile is actually brought into what we would consider the church. So first reason is that they stayed in Israel and they shared, as Jesus commissioned them to do in Acts 1.8, they shared with the Jewish people. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the apostles were seven solid years sharing with the Jewish people exclusively. It's only in 40 AD that Cornelius actually comes in uh, to the church. And of course, that creates an entire crisis what do we do now that we have a gentile christian you know it's kind of a funny thing we mm-hmm. we, we we look at jewish christians you know as anomalies and we say why aren't you aren't you a nice novelty to invite to our churches but in reality uh 2000 years ago it was the reverse the gentile christians were the rarity were the novelty so that's number 1 number 2 there was a strategic reason that the apostles went to the Jewish people. It was eventually uh, important to go outside of Israel. As Jesus said, you'll begin in Jerusalem, you'll go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uh, uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, for a great, to a great extent, the Jewish apostles were, in a sense, forced outside of their comfort zone in Israel by persecution uh, to go and share the gospel in uh, Asia Minor and various other places. But uh, strategically, it was very important to start with the Jewish communities, with the synagogues, because from a missiological strategy, it would make sense to start with people who would understand the presuppositions of the gospel. And certainly the Jewish people would have and did very clearly understood the need for Messiah, the messianic hope, the belief in one God, uh, the belief in a coming judgment, a resurrection. These were all concepts very familiar to the Jewish people and even to the Gentiles who would attend the synagogues. So that's the second reason. The third reason is out of theological necessity. Paul talks about it in Acts in Acts thirteen forty six. He says it was necessary 
that we preach the gospel to you first. Uh, he also refers to this in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is not just a historical uh, uh, record or a historical priority. That is a theological necessity, as Paul points out, because God has chosen the Jewish people to be his chosen vehicles, in a sense. Uh, And so when Paul shares with the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah, it's a very natural, it's a very essential, and it really completes and fulfills everything that the Jewish people had hoped for, waited for, and were about. Fantastic. Now, Steve, are those... Do those reasons still apply to us today in regards to the importance of Jewish evangelism? Do those reasons still apply to us? Well, you know, that's a very good question. And uh, a lot of people would say, no, that's that's just uh, church history. That's the way it was in the first century. And there's no reason to do so now. And if reason number two, which was missiological strategy, was the only reason that Paul and the apostles went to the Jewish people first, then you might be able to make a case. But there has been no addendums, as far as I'm aware, no addendums to the New Testament, uh, no uh, additions to say, you know, it is no longer necessary to share with the Jewish people if the Jewish people were the chosen people, and there is no scripture that says they are no longer the chosen people, if there is no scripture to say now to the Gentile and forget about the Jew, or the Jews have no other priority aside from, you know, any other people group, then one must assume that the truths taught in the books of the New Testament, both in Paul's epistles, in Peter's preaching, in Paul's preaching, uh, and theological, uh, his theological teachings, that uh, those still apply. In other words, the priority of evangelism is still to the Jew first. We see this very, very clearly wherever Paul goes. Remember, who is Paul? The apostle to the Gentiles. But no matter that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was very, very clear to go wherever he went to the Jewish communities first, and only then shared with the Gentiles. Now, Steve, tell us the relationship between Jewish and non-Jewish believers in the church today. How has that changed from um, Old Testament to New Testament times? Well, of course, in the Old Testament, uh, there is no church In the Old Testament, there is the people of God, Israel, and uh, if you wanted to become a part of the people of God, you assimilated yourself, you joined yourself to the chosen people, either as a proselyte, a proselyte of the gate, or a God-fearer. We see these three categories, actually. We see them very clearly in the book of Acts. Uh, A God-fearer was a Gentile who was interested in worshiping the God of Israel, the one God. He had renounced paganism, but was not willing to to, uh, follow Judaism as a practice. A proselyte was uh, someone who completely became a Jewish person. They were not considered Jews. They were considered proselytes, Gentile uh, followers of the Jewish religion. And then there was the proselyte of the gate who followed Judaism in just about every other fashion, every fashion, except they were unwilling to take the final step of circumcision. So they were kind of, in a sense, a cut above uh, the rest. But um, uh, we see these three categories. Cornelius, the first Gentile to come into the kingdom into the church in the book of Acts is a God-fearer. Steve, we're talking about the relationship between Jews 
and Gentiles in the, in the Old Testament times. How about in the New Testament, in the church? What is that relationship now? That's a great question. And in fact, the church, by definition, is Jewish believers and Gentile believers. That is the mystery, as Paul points out, of the church. That is what is so beautiful about the reconciliation that Jesus brings uh to fruition in his death, burial, and resurrection, and bringing uh, this new covenant, inaugurating the new covenant, and bringing Jewish and Gentile people who are completely at odds, irreconcilable enemies, uh, but now are one new man. Now, that doesn't mean that we lose our distinctive uh, ethnicities. A non-Jew is still a non-Jew, even as a believer. A Jew is still a Jew as a believer, just as a man and a woman are still maintain their uh, their uh, identities as believers. And that is the beauty of what the church is. And that is what um, what is missing in many of our churches uh, that are comprised completely of Gentiles without even a, a mission support of a, a Jewish missionary to reach the Jewish people, because it's like watching an airplane fly with one wing. What's impressive about seeing an airplane with one wing? It's going to crash. It doesn't, it doesn't take off. It doesn't have full lift. But when a Jew and a Gentile are together, one new man, then there is hope for the world, for black, white, men, women, Asian, Hispanic, pick your ethnicity, pick your issue. All can be reconciled to God and to each other through being part of this movement we call the church, Followers of Jesus. Right, and we've got uh, some diversity here in this studio. we we got Caucasian, Jewish, and an Asian sitting right here, so part of what Steve's talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, Steve, what are some things we need to understand when we begin dialoguing with Jewish individuals? Some of us are uh, have that... Uh, Myth that, well, they're just waiting to hear from us Christians. They like us Christians. We're, we're cousins. You know? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that Jewish people, and again, when I say, when I say Jewish people, we can't speak monolithically because the Jewish uh, people are not a monolithic community. Where you have two Jews, you have three opinions. Uh, and uh, this is uh, particularly true when it comes to what people think of Jesus, what people think of the church. Um, many Jewish people, frankly, are scared to death. We are the most frightening, especially evangelical Christians, are the most frightening uh, group of people in this country, bar none. And think about the various different subgroups and organizations in this country. They're more afraid of us than they're afraid of the Nazis, okay, uh, because mm. of the tremendous history of anti-Semitism that the church has propagated against the Jewish people. Um, one cannot run from the history of the church. When you study the history of the church, you are studying a history of systematic persecution and antagonism against the Jewish people. It's hard for the Jewish people today not to take that kind of history, that kind of legacy, personally. So they approach Christians with a certain amount of distrust from the get-go, unlike just about any other people group. The Jewish people have a a legacy of 2,000 years of fear and distrust that, first of all, we need to overcome with being genuine and authentic and enthusiastic lovers of God and of His people. So that's, I guess, the first presupposition that I would uh, advise coming uh, coming to. The second, Steve, Steve oh. before you go to the second one, would you comment on what Martin Luther said? Because he said something very unfortunately anti-Semitic in anger, didn't he? Well, Martin Luther, whether it was, I don't believe it was written in anger. Uh, Martin Luther, at the end, toward the end of his career, uh, he wrote a diatribe, a, a pamphlet, uh, 
which is rather notorious in Jewish circles. Most Christians don't know anything about it, but uh, you can even go onto the internet. You can pipe in, uh, type in Martin Luther, Jewish or Jews, uh, and, uh, and get it right there. Just have to Google it. Uh, and uh, what he wrote was that Jewish people should be disenfranchised. They're stubborn rejectors of Christ, uh, and uh, their synagogues should be burned, their possessions taken. Uh, they should be uh, thrown into labor camps, and uh, if they're continue to be recalcitrant, they should be killed. Now, I'm paraphrasing Martin. Martin Luther was a great orator, and boy, could he be poetic in his anti-Semitism. It was the most beautifully written, passionate piece of anti-Semitism that one could anticipate. Um, and really, when you take all of Martin Luther's points, uh, you can see where some of the justification was uh, 400 years later when you have the Holocaust. All of Martin Luther's uh, uh, um, advice was systematically carried out by Hitler and the Nazi party. Um, but the sad thing is, Kevin, is that Martin Luther is not, does not exist in a vacuum um, Martin Luther is not alone in his anti-Semitism, and these kinds of anti-Semitic comments can be found going all the way back to the second, third century. Now, your second point that you were about to get to on our relationship between Jews and Christians. Yes, and that is to not to assume that Jewish people, once you once they get over the the, the distrust of a Christian coming up to try to share the gospel with them. Don't assume, first of all, that they've ever heard the gospel. Now, we have six million Jewish people in America, and uh, we have a tremendous, as we know, we have a tremendous number of evangelicals. Uh, and uh, there should be, theoretically, no reason that Jewish people have never heard the gospel. But I'm here to tell you that most Jewish people, they are not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting their perception of the gospel, and it may or may not be an accurate perception. They're rejecting what they perceive the church is, not Jesus. They're not rejecting Jesus. They don't know anything about Jesus except perhaps what they've caught uh, on billboards for the passion or what they uh, what they see in the occasional movie or catch uh, from some of their neighbors. So... Don't assume a level of knowledge and familiarity with Jesus or the gospel. And that leads me to point number three. Don't assume a, le a level of familiarity with the Old Testament. Most Christians, when they think about what it's the Jewish people, they get very intimidated because they think that every Jewish person is an expert on the Old Testament, on the Hebrew Scriptures, and that they really are going to be able to witness the fact that the Jewish people, they have got to bone up on their Messianic prophecies, they've got to memorize uh, the Old Testament. That's not so, because most Jewish people know far less about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, than your average church-going Christian. So don't be intimidated about a perceived level of knowledge that my people don't possess. Not to say that there won't be some who have had training in the scriptures and familiarity with it, but the vast majority they have to blow the dust off their scriptures, uh, you know, when they pick it up mm -hmm. to stop using it as a doorstop. Now, there are three sects in Judaism that we went over uh, last week, Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative. How well between those sects, you know, do they know the Bible? Well, those are your three major sects. You have several minor sects as well, you know, which is a tremendous number of uh, subdivisions for a group of people that don't number over 15 and a half million. But as I said, two Jews, three opinions, and this comes through in denominations as well. Now, the Orthodox would know their scripture very well, um, but more than the scripture, they would be more familiar with the Talmud, the oral law. 
And in fact, they spend much more time studying the oral law, in other words, what the rabbis have said about the Hebrew Scripture than the Hebrew Scripture itself. So while there is a level of education there among Orthodox Jews, don't assume that they know more about the Scripture than you do. They may well, they may well know much more what the rabbis have taught about the Scriptures than the actual text uh, itself. The conservative uh, would be, some would be knowledgeable, some might not. They're kind of the middle of the road. And like any group in the middle of the road, you have a little bit of mixed bag. And the reform, what can I say about the reform Jews? Um, the, the Jewish people, I, I was educated as a reform Jew. And uh, you need to know that uh, in reform Judaism, belief in God is optional. So <laughs> when it comes to approaching the text, uh, there isn't a tremendous n- amount of respect or time invested in studying uh, something like prophecy or the messianic prophecies. As a matter of fact, many of the great uh, traditional ideas that we have, they view as abstractions and theories as opposed to true prophetic promises. Hmm. Now, that leads to our next question. Now, explain to us the various views of the messianic hope among the different sects here. Well, I'm glad you asked that because I've I've just come out uh, with a chapter in a book uh, on prophecy that's uh, just released, The Gathering Storm. And the chapter that I contributed is on the Jewish messianic hope. And uh, I took systematically, uh, verse by verse, idea, concept by concept, idea by idea, what the Jewish people would have expected the Messiah to have been in the time of Jesus. And frankly, what they would have expected in the time of Jesus would have been a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, they would have expected a conquering hero, okay, Zechariah 12, 13, 14, Isaiah 9, a a supernatural king. Uh, There are many different verses that we could quote for that. Uh, A prophet like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18, a second Moses, a deliverer, uh, uh, a great hero, a great charismatic individual. Uh, And, of course, they got all of those in Jesus. Of course, he didn't pack in all that activity in the three, three and a half years of his public ministry, but it's all coming uh, at some point. Now, as far as what the Jewish people believe as to Messiah today, only the Orthodox believe then in the idea of a personal Messiah, that there is a coming anointed one who will uh, be a righteous king and uh, rule the earth. The conservative and the reformed Jews have taken this concept of a personal messianic deliverer, a Messiah, in other words, a Hebrew Mashiach, and they have applied it to a theory, to an age. So they are expecting a messianic age. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share it with your family, your friends, and of course, your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, 
Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.